Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Can I ask you a question? What, what does your caseload look like right now? I have about, I believe, about 2,500 cases on my docket. Ashley Tabador is an immigration judge in Los Angeles. She's actually president of the union representing those judges. I deal primarily with unaccompanied minors, the children under 18 who are identified or apprehended at the border or shortly after sort of entering the United States, and they're found at that point to be um, without a parent. The kids on Judge Tabador's docket, they are just a fraction of the hundreds of thousands of people waiting in immigration court limbo. And as if handling that daunting caseload wasn't enough? The administration has now introduced quotas and deadlines to judges as a condition of keeping their employment. So now the judges are even more stressed and anxious about wanting to keep their job and, and worrying about are they doing enough cases fast enough. So, yes, the, the, the sort of the situation at this point is quite challenging. Each morning, Judge Tabador gets this reminder of just how challenging this all is when she logs onto her computer and sees this dashboard. The dashboard looks a little bit like a speed car odometers where you have five or six or seven odometers and most of the odometer is red with a sliver of yellow and a small sliver of green. These little odometers, they're keeping track of whether or not she's hitting her numbers, blowing deadlines. That big slice of red, it means she's failing, at least according to the Trump administration. It's a constant reminder for for judges, including myself, of how much the administration places emphasis on numbers, on quantity rather than quality. It sounds like you're at the, the bottom of like a funnel, like all these cases are coming and then they come to people like you who have to process a lot of things all at once. Well, that's right. So we're now up to eight, over 850,000 pending cases for about 400 judges. And that's not counting the about 250 or 300,000 cases that former Attorney General Sessions has indicated should be back on our docket. So that would take us up to 1.1 million cases if you count those cases as well. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the immigration system from one unique perspective. Judge Tabador's. The border might be at the breaking point, but she's been on the bench since 2005, and she says immigration court has been broken. And the question is how to fix it. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. 
That's SAP Business AI. Let me talk a little bit about your story. Like, why did you want to be an immigration judge in particular? So I myself am a refugee from Iran. We came to the United States when I was about 10 or 11 years old after the revolution that occurred in Iran and created the unfortunate situation that we are dealing with now. And because of that background, I'm very sensitive to the importance of making sure that a system has a rule of law, that it has competent uh, individuals running the government, that it doesn't have corruption or nepotism. And so from my perspective, when I came to the United States and, and was introduced to our American uh, democratic principles, the system of checks and balances, the three branches of government, I really was absolutely, for lack of a better word, blown away by it all and just felt this this immediate uh, affinity towards it and, and, and this desire to want to be a part of ensuring that the system continues to, uh, to thrive. Judge Tabador's family was like a lot of families trying to navigate the American immigration system. They were a little lost. They were swindled by attorneys they faced an endless chain of bureaucracy, and they lived in fear of law enforcement action while they waited for their paperwork to be processed. And when we became eligible for citizenship, this was something that my mother made sure that every one of us applied for citizenship literally the first day that we became eligible to submit those applications. And I was sworn in as a United States citizen in my first year of law school, which hmm. paved the way for me to be able to come back and serve in the Justice Department during my second year summer program. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing that you went from just getting citizenship to a couple years later serving at the DOJ. Well, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer because I knew I wanted to serve as a public servant. And I always knew that I also wanted to be in some capacity connected to the judicial branch in the litigation arena. And the Justice Department was, to me, sort of the epitome of where one can serve in that capacity. So becoming a citizen was a key part of that because it's a precondition to, to being um, considered for any position within the Justice Department. So... When you started working as an immigration judge, I just wonder, was it ever good, like it was working, and you thought, this is great, the system is doing what it needs to do? Yes, there are certainly um, situations in which I felt that there was much greater respect that was um, afforded to immigration judges. But frankly, the issues pre-exist uh, this administration, and, and much of the issues that we see today we have seen before. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that you and your colleagues have kind of been sounding the alarm about immigration, and especially what's happening with the immigration judiciary, for a long time now, even under President Obama. And I wonder, absolutely, how did how did you see the challenges you're seeing now, years ago, when people were maybe paying less attention? Well, we often say that this is not an issue of the right or issue of the left. This is really about protecting our American democratic principles. So. It doesn't matter what administration is in power. The problem is that every administration chose to use the court in some way that would be inconsistent with our American judicial principles. Yeah, I mean, let's stop and explain that a little bit, because I think a lot of people will be surprised that this court functions very differently than other courts in the United States. Can you explain how the immigration court came to be set up like this, where it's really run as part of the Department of Justice rather than an independent judiciary? Sure. So the immigration court was set up or it was born out of the former Immigration and Naturalization Service. And it was set up when it was the realization that INS or 
you know, Immigration Naturalization Service, conducts a number of different types of activities. And one of those activities is adjudicating claims that individuals have against or within the context of law enforcement action of the department. And there was a recognition that, well, you can't have the left arm that's taking law enforcement action also be in charge of the right arm that's supposed to be presiding over these proceedings where private individuals are involved. So they created a separate agency called Executive Office for Immigration Review. The problem is that they created it within the same department, Department of Justice. So we had INS on the one hand accountable to the Attorney General and the Immigration Court within Executive Office for Immigration Review also accountable to the Attorney General. And so from that first day on, that conflict of interest existed. Just to put a point on this, Judge Tabador is saying that there's an inherent problem in the immigration court system. And that problem is where this system exists, inside the Department of Justice. Her boss is the Attorney General of the United States, a political appointee. And her court is subject to the whims of DOJ policy. I asked the judge to give me just one example of this problem. One of the problems that we highlight is that Congress provided contempt authority to the immigration judges, recognizing that a tool that a judge needs to have is the ability to control his or her courtroom. And that means sometimes holding certain attorneys in contempt for their unprofessional or incompetent representation or or treatment or demeanor before the judge. So that means you can, in a hearing, you can hold someone in contempt of court. You can interrupt the proceedings and say, stop. Correct. But the problem is that the Department of Justice has never implemented the regulations to allow us to use that authority. And this has been consistent with both sort of Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. So we've sort of said this is just unacceptable that you do not allow the judges to have the authority that Congress uh, bestowed upon us. But it's again a reflection of the fact that the department does not consider immigration judges as true judges or the court as true courts. You said it's like the immigration judges aren't quite judges, but they're more prosecutors in robes. In many instances, um, we end up being basically a, a veneer for a courtroom, because if you look at it, we have a situation in which you have the attorney general have the ability to step in on any one of the cases and take a case and use that case as a mechanism to, um, to extend whatever law enforcement policies the executive branch is following at that point. So when you have a court system that allows a prosecutor to engage in this type of super veto power and insert himself or herself into the proceedings, that is highly problematic. Not to mention, again, the quotas and deadlines, because you would you can do something like that with maybe a prosecutor to come and say, look, I want you to have a certain number of cases um, followed up or investigated or maybe indicted, or I want you to be working on a certain deadline, and otherwise you lose your job. But with a judge, you cannot introduce a personal financial interest into a case because a judge is supposed to be completely divorced from the interests of the parties over whom he or she is presiding. Another example of the DOJ stepping into an immigration judge's business is the way they reprioritize their dockets. Different attorney generals prioritize different cases. What this means is that we have hundreds of thousands of cases that are pending, working their way through the system. But because the administration wants to send a specific signal to a specific subgroup of people, they decide to put those cases in front of the line. And when you reorganize our caseload and put certain cases in front of the line, you are introducing delay and compromising the integrity of the court. 
you talked a lot about the delays in the court system and the and the backlog. And I wonder, can you just explain, like, when does it become a problem? Well, I think everyone is familiar with the saying that justice delayed is justice denied. And in the context of immigration court, what ends up happening is that when you have these delays, individuals who have very solid cases that should result in some sort of benefit to them are going to have the likelihood of success seriously diminished over time because, one, memories fade, two, witnesses can become unavailable, or frankly, the evidence can somehow become uh, stale. And so by the time you get to the trial, what was initially a very strong case becomes much more problematic. And then on the other side of the coin, you have individuals who frankly shouldn't be in the United States, should have had their cases heard expeditiously and having had an order of removal and be removed from the United States. But instead, they get to stay in the United States for years and years, which is really the ultimate goal. You know, I want to go back to the stress that you and your colleagues are feeling right now, because the Department of Justice says, you know, we're we're trying to address this. We're hiring more judges. We're bringing them in to help so that folks' dockets get reduced Why isn't that a solution here? Well, certainly having more judges and more resources is part of the solution. But the problem is that when all these other stressors that are in large part artificially created are not being addressed, that doesn't change the stress on the job or for the judges. So what I'm talking about is this imposition of quotas and deadlines that creates an unnecessary stress and anxiety for judges. But even with those immigration judges coming on board, because we're not run like a court, the the necessary structure and infrastructure that's supposed to be in place hasn't been put in place. So we have judges who don't have sufficient support support staff. We don't have ju- we have judges who don't have courtrooms. We have in, st- in situations that we don't have in person interpreters allowed to us because of the frankly the mismanagement of the court's budget. So those issues remain in spite of the, the fact that of course we welcome having more judges added to the judges' core. Do you, I mean, you're the head of the judges union. You must meet with these new judges and sort of be talking to them about what the job is and helping them get settled. I just wonder what your conversation with them is like. So the problem that the new judges have, and that's been one of the issues that we've highlighted, is that the new judges are subject to what's called a probationary period. And what this means is that they can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. So these judges for usually up to two years are on probationary status. And at at any day, they can lose their job. And that is a huge cause of stress and anxiety for them. And by the same token, then that means those judges are much more tuned in to what they believe the administration or the agency expects of them. And that's been one of the challenges in trying to empower the judges to recognize that as judges, they have an oath of office that they have taken and must be true to. And that oath of office should be the sole uh, guiding uh, principle by which they preside over their cases. Is the probationary period new? The probationary period is not new. Uh, so in the past, it definitely was um, a probationary period. Usually it was a year. But this administration has placed a great deal of emphasis in extending that probationary period to two years and to reminding everyone that they are on probation and they can be um, fired at any point. Not especially welcome way to walk into a job. Correct. 
Judge Tabador, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Judge Ashley Tabador is an immigration judge in Los Angeles. She spoke to us in her capacity as the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. All right, that's the show. If you like what you're hearing, even if you don't, drop me a note on Twitter. I am out there at Mary's desk. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. Talk to you soon. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.